are some uh, acts of evil, are they just too evil, too heinous to be forgiven? Some of you probably remember in the early 1975, the Khmer Rouge evacuated the capital city, Phnom Penh, and seized control of the, company, uh, the, the country of Cambodia. As part of his ascent to power, Pol Pot quickly began purging those whom he saw as a threat to his revolution. Eventually, the Khmer Rouge killed millions of innocent civilians and sent many more to work in rural work camps. Eventually, um, one of the people who was sent to those camps was a man by the name of Christopher Lapel. His parents and two of his siblings would be killed by the Khmer Rouge. But eventually, he made his way out of Cambodia, and he became a Christian in a refugee camp, and then he emigrated to the United States. He was a serious Christian with a heart for the Cambodian people, and he was instrumental. He would go on to be instrumental in planting several churches there in Cambodia. In 1997, which isn't that long ago, on one of his many trips back to his native country, a man came to one of the church services that was led by Pastor Christopher, and eventually, after hearing the preaching several times, he said he wanted to become a Christian, but he believed that his sin was just too great. Well, the pastor encouraged him, pleaded with him, prayed for and with him, told him that God could forgive any sin. And clearly, the Holy Spirit was working, was working on this man. He finally put his faith in Christ for salvation. Pastor Christopher baptized the man that he believed to be a teacher, baptized him in those muddy waters of the river Sangi in western Cambodia. The man was filled with joy and went back to his hometown to teach others about the good news of Jesus Christ. After more than 20 years of hiding the truth, that same man not long after his baptism into the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that man revealed his true identity. Kang Kek Lu, better known by his revolutionary name, Comrade Duke. He was the head of the Khmer Rouge's secret police. This new believer in Jesus Christ confessed responsibility for the deaths of at least 12,000 people. He'd been in charge of the concentration camp and, and, and where they were put to death and, and buried in a mass grave. Duke was turned over to the United Nations International Crimes Court to be tried for his crimes. Several of Pastor Christopher Lapel's family members had been killed in that same concentration camp. Remember, his parents... His brother and sister all died during the Khmer Rouge's reign of terror from 1975 to 1979, along with two million others. When he was interviewed about this, 
Pastor Christopher said this. He said, I was shocked when I found out who he really was because what he did was so evil. Then I reflected, it's amazing. It's a miracle. Christianity changes people's lives. If Jesus can change Duke, he can change anyone. Pastor Christopher learned of the true identity of the man that he had led to Christ and, and baptized. He was understandably stunned, but he believed that the Holy Spirit had convicted Comrade Duke to confess his sins and speak the truth. Christopher forgave him and even spoke on his behalf during his trial where he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. And until Duke's death, which was just a couple of years ago in 2020, Christopher visited him in prison and ministered to his family. This Christian pastor could not have known the extent of Duke's sins. But he knew that he had sinned grievously against his nation, even his own family. Yet he offered forgiveness and reconciliation. He ministered to him and and considered him a brother in Christ. But Comrade Duke had sinned first and foremost against God. Same as you, actually, and me. But the Bible teaches us that none is too far from God that He can't save them. That all who call upon the Lord will be saved. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then listen to this. It's Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. If I've learned anything about ministry over the years, it's that one thing that repentant sinners need to hear often is an assurance of forgiveness, an assurance of pardon. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Sometimes when we think about the law of God, We don't often think of an assurance of pardon, of an assurance of forgiveness. We don't consider that under the the old covenant, sins could actually be forgiven. That's because 
It's because there was a constant, a constant need of forgiveness, right? Under the old covenant, Hebrew tells us that the, that the priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, every day, morning and evening. There's a constant reminder of our sin. But in the new covenant, God promises I will remember their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their lawless deeds, their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so as we pick up our study this morning in the law of God in the book of Leviticus, we're, we're finishing kind of the first section of the book. It's all about these various offerings and sacrifices. From the, from the very first verse of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, where we ended last week, we find laws pertaining to the offerings uh, the people of Israel were to, to regularly bring to the Lord as they came to worship Him over and over and over again. But as we've seen as we've worked through this, these are all copies and shadows of the true sacrifice, the one of whom John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These all, all of this that we've been studying in Leviticus, it all points to Christ. They all point to our need for a final and complete sacrifice and even a, a true high priest. This points to our need for a Savior. Let's just stop and pray here. We'll read this as we go. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand wonderful things about your law, that we might know who you are, what you require of us, and what you have fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ, that we may look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this next section, we're going to pick it up here in chapter 6, verse um, 8. As we look at this next section, which really kind of rounds out the first section, um, the first several chapters of the book, the focus is going to shift. You'll see this as we get into this. The focus is going to shift from the, the various offerings that the people were to bring in order to approach the Lord in worship to the work of the priests for those same offerings. So pretty much all that we have seen so far in Leviticus has been addressed to regular, everyday Israelites. Now remember, as, as per their covenant agreement with the Lord... The people had said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so the law here consists of the, of the foundational requirements of the, really the five major sacrificial offerings. These are the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin or purification offering, and the guilt offering. Now this next section that we're going to look at today um, it also addresses those same offerings, but for the most part, as I said, it's directed to the priests. There's a little bit at the end where he switches back to the people, but we'll come to that in, in due course. We're going to go through this section pretty quickly. 
because most of it we've already addressed. We're going to take a big bite today and go all the way through chapter 7. And I don't know, it's probably the longest chapter so far. Um, I think there's 38 verses. So we're going to take a big bite this morning. We're going to leave some things left unsaid, some things behind, but I pray that this will give you a sense of the, of the gravity of the priest's responsibility, as well as the message that they were to convey to the people under their spiritual care. Now, as I said, because this is a long section, um, we're going to read it in smaller parts and not all at once. Um, but when we do read through this, you should notice that not only are there instructions uh, in this is the instructions for the priests, but also each section kind of serves as a, as a summary of the full instructions for each offering. So, so for example, chapter 6, verses 8 to 13 is about the, the burnt offering, which we looked at in chapter 1. All of chapter 1 is about the burnt offering, and this is a summary of that. Well, I'm kind of spending a long time setting this up, but because this is a different perspective, because we're looking at the same thing from a different point of view, that of the priests, there are a couple of differences. So, So first... This focuses more specifically on the proper handling of the offerings by the priests. Okay? Second difference is that um, this is where we begin to see a few um, subcategories of the offerings. So, for example, um, we're introduced to three different types of peace offering. We're not going to spend much time on that, but we're starting to see some sort of um, uh, teasing out of these offerings in the life of the people of Israel. And then third, and this is actually what I think is the most significant here, this section of the law orders the offerings differently. It puts the peace offerings at the end instead of right in the middle where the first sections do. We'll come back to that. I think that's significant. Now, What is clear is that Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, these first seven chapters, provides the foundation necessary for the people of God to perform the rituals of the sacrifices properly in the way that God wants them to, how He desires. And this foundation is going to be needed by the people of God for many of the ceremonies that will be established later, such as the Day of Atonement in, in chapter 16. But, but consider these things for just a moment. As, as I give you a, a lot of information, consider these things for just a minute. To lead the people of God in worship is no small task. Have you ever thought about that? To lead the people of God in worship is no small task. It is an enormous privilege and responsibility that ought not be taken lightly. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, the Lord tells us, He's actually in the middle of a rebuke for the people of Israel, but He tells us how it is supposed to be. Malachi 2 says this, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, that is the tribe of priests, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. 
It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So it's a big deal. Um, So what is the message that the priests here, under the old covenant, what is the message that the priest was to give these people of God who were genuinely repentant? And that is a key to all of this. They were the ones who are genuinely repentant. They were genuinely seeking to approach the Lord in holiness and obedience. What was the message that he was to give them? It was a, it was a message of assurance. A message of assurance, beginning with the assurance of access. So so let's look at this first section. Leviticus chapter 6, verses just 8 to 13. Let me read these verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning. The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on the garments, other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn on it every morning. And he shall, uh, wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. So, in presenting the burnt offering, the Israelites were acknowledging their need for atonement, that they needed the debt for their sins to be paid. And they were requesting that the Lord look upon them favorably, that he look upon them graciously, and that the burning of the offering would rise as a pleasant aroma and would please the Lord. And for the priests involved with this, there were two practical consequences. They were to keep the fire burning continually, and because of that, they would need to clear the ashes out every morning. In order to do this, and also to remain ceremonially pure and unstained, he would wear his priestly garments when he came into contact with the altar, cleaning out the ashes, and then change into street clothes when he would carry the ashes outside the camp. Now, I don't know if you caught this when we read through this, but it's not the ashes that makes him unclean. It's actually the impurities outside in the world. He's not allowed to bring that in, those impurities in, to where they might come into contact with the Lord's holy things. And so he would have to change his clothes in the middle of this process of cleaning out the ashes. Now I often, uh, we have a wood stove, and I also have to change my clothes after cleaning out the ashes. But I'm getting, it's the opposite. Do you see that it's the opposite? He's wearing his priestly garments when he's handling the ashes at the altar. 
the unstained impurities of the world outside the camp are not allowed into that holy place by the holy altar. This might seem somewhat strange, but remember that this is a shadow or a type of the holiness required of us when we approach the Lord. In fact, spiritually speaking, we must be clothed in Christ's righteous garments to come into the Lord's presence. And the purpose of this offering, the purpose of this burnt offering was to seek the Lord's favor, to be allowed into his presence. And so it was a continual fire available morning and evening all the time. And if the priest fulfilled this responsibility, he provided assurance of access for the people of God into the presence of God. For us, we have Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 which brings us really to the second assurance here. Hebrews 4, 16 says that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we are clothed with Christ's righteous garments, we are able to draw near that we might receive mercy and find grace. This brings us to the second assurance. That is is the assurance of acceptance, that the Lord accepts us. We'll pick it up in verse 14 there of chapter 6. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and Burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Now, this this section, um, and again, we're... We're taking some huge bites today, but this section is mostly an overview of chapter 2. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 2, the grain offering was a gift given to God in order to demonstrate thankfulness and dedication. And the law here also stresses the absence of leaven, which represents the the sin that, that just spreads and grows throughout our lives and throughout the camp, throughout the people. The people of God were to be a holy people. And in order for the offering to remain holy, 
The priest was required to carefully follow these regulations in eating the offering, that whatever touches them, verse 18 says, uh, shall become holy. So, so thorough is the holiness required. This is meant to illustrate uh, um, the, the priest eating this grain offering is meant to illustrate uh, to the worshiper, to the person who's watching this happen, the person who brings the grain offering in and he sees the priest take and eat. It's meant to illustrate that his offering is accepted by God, that it was pleasing to him. M- ministers of God's people, whether it is, and, I, and I'm making a, a dotted line connection here. Um, I'm going to use the word minister. It means servant. Um, I'm not a priest. I'm not anything like the Old Testament priests. In fact, all, we have a priesthood of believers with a great high priest being Christ. My job is different from their job. But ministers of God's people are called to give assurance that those who are His are accepted by Him. If you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you may boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that you don't need some earthly priest involved in your worship at all, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We may boldly approach the throne of grace. We may receive, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace to help. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Rest. The priests were to provide assurance. They're also to provide assurance of purification. This is where uh, the Lord goes next, where the law goes next. Verse 24. Assurance of purification. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Now, I want to point out, this is where uh, the Lord skips the peace offerings, and then he comes back to that at the end. I don't think that's a mistake. Hold that thought. We're talking here about the sin offerings now. See, after assuring, this is what is happening here, after assuring that the sin offering was made in the proper holy place, that the offering and its blood were kept from becoming profane through contact either with the, the clothing or utensils, the priest was instructed to eat some of the offering. And the implication is that he would do this within the sight of those who brought the offering. And so just like with the grain offering, this was a sign that the Lord accepted the offering, that purification had been made. 
So, three quick observations of this sin offering. First, notice the phrase in verse 25, before the Lord. Before the Lord. God's ministers must ensure that worshipers find forgiveness from God alone. Against you and you alone have I sinned, declared David, Psalm 51. Let me read verse 25 again. I want to be sure that you understand this. Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, if uh, this is the law of the sin offering, in the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. God's ministers must ensure that worshipers find forgiveness from God and God alone. Second, the priests were to prevent the ritual of purification, this sin offering, from becoming commonplace. It was to be eaten in a certain spot. The clothing and the utensils must be treated in certain ways, either smashed or scoured clean. The purpose here is that they were to take these things seriously and not be flippant with sin or confession and forgiveness. To not be flippant with purification. Sin stains. It really does. The wages of sin is death and something has to die because of their sin. You see it there? We cannot take these things flippantly. And then finally, in doing all of these things in the Lord's way, ministers were providing, when they followed the law perfectly, ministers, these priests were providing assurance for the worshipers that the Lord has, in fact, purified them from their sin. Now, fast forward a few thousand years to today. Christian Christian ministers. We don't need a special oracle from the Lord to pronounce forgiveness. I, I, I don't need a special word from the Lord to say your sins are forgiven. In fact, it's actually built into the new covenant. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness it's already there everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved shall be cleansed from all righteousness shall have their sins forgiven it is only in Christ that we can have an assurance of purification but this continues because there is still yet more here not only must we be made pure, we also must be reconciled. And so there's an assurance of reconciliation. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. 
Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There's one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared in a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the sons of Aaron. Now, there is actually a combination of a whole bunch of different offerings that's addressed here. But this begins with the guilt offering. And if you remember, we looked at this just last week, the guilt offering was given to address that that breach of faith committed against a covenant king. This was to address the, the faithless treachery that the sinners committed against their covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Now, the previous passages that we looked at last week explain that when, to, when, when they were to bring the offerings, uh, how they were to do that, this explains how they are to offer the offerings, which is not unlike the other animal sacrifices. If you've been studying this with us all along, you're seeing some of the same types of language. But the thing to remember is that through all of these offerings, the focus is on the heart that is genuinely repented, both of the priest and of the laity of the people of Israel. The priest must be genuine in his own repentance and faith. He was to guard the worship of the Lord's house. And then likewise, the people were to only bring this offering if they were convicted in their hearts to to pay restitution, it says, to be reconciled both to God and to others against whom they had sinned. And in doing his part faithfully, the priest would bring an assurance of reconciliation to the people. As a result of the faithfulness of both the people and the priests to follow the laws exactly as the Lord had prescribed them, the Lord designed this system to also meet the material needs of the priests and their families. Not only for their food, it says several times, but also it even mentions skins, the hides, Food and clothing the Lord is providing here. This entire system was designed for both the spiritual benefit of the worshiper and the practical needs of the ministers who served. The same same is true for Christian churches. Paul links this to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He, He says this in verses 13 and 14. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let me put this simply. We have responsibilities toward one another. You're called to bring offerings to the Lord as an act of worship, and I am required to teach you the word. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says it plainly. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. But that's not the extent of our responsibilities, right? We've also been given a ministry of reconciliation. 
And that message, it brings great assurance, is this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And following that pronouncement, it is fitting then that the Lord would circle back and give us an assurance of peace. An assurance of peace, verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings." And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not have, leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, that what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or any unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, again, there's some tough and hard to understand things in some of these hard to apply to us. But this is the culmination of worship, the peace offering. This is the greatest joy of worship. It's to enter into the presence of God and celebrate being at peace with Him. Do you catch that? The culmination of worship is to be able to enter into the presence of God, a holy, holy, holy God, and be at peace with him. For the faithful Israelite, out of gratitude and devotion to the Lord, here under the law, the worshiper brings a peace offering into the sanctuary to be eaten within the prescribed times and in God's presence and, and in communion with the priests and the entire congregation. They're all eating of it here. 
And it's fitting that the Lord moved this offering to the end here because it really is the culmination of all of the other offerings. Peace with God is not achieved by anything that we can do. Only when full atonement has been made can we have any sense at all of peace with our holy God. Do you know what's really kind of, I think, kind of cool about all of this? This isn't anything by any plan of mine. But we've been doing this for several years now. What is the first thing you hear when you enter into this sanctuary for worship? I don't mean the murmur of the fellowship that um, with the other saints. We hear that, and that's good. I don't mean the musical prelude of a piano playing. I know that sometimes this, this happens when you're still out in the Thunderdome. But the very first thing that we hear when we enter into his courts together for worship is grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Those sac- all those sacrifices, they're done. Once and for all. In Christ. And so we don't have to wait to hear peace. We don't have to sit on edge wondering, did we do everything right? Did the priest do everything right? Is everything appropriate? Did we follow every bit of the law? Because Christ did all of that for us. And so the first thing that you can hear, the first thing that Christians can hear when they enter into the worship of the God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior is grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not going to say welcome. I'm glad you're here because this ain't my house. The first thing Christian, that you need to hear every Lord's Day when you walk into the fellowship of the saints, the assembly is grace and peace because all of those other sacrifices, all of that, the complication that we've been reading about, all those complicated sacrifices and laws have already been made by Jesus Christ on your behalf. And even so, now there's a little bit of a shift here, and God makes a claim. God's claim. Pick it up in verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, here's the shift, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of the one that is torn by beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal or of any... Uh, In any of your dwelling places, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Notice the switch from the priest back to the people. This instruction has been given before. God is laying claim to the life of his people, the best that they have. That's what he means by the blood and the fat. In its blood is its its life blood, right? Life and fat is the, the abundance the life and the abundance are God's. 
That's what he is saying here. The best of life. However, Jesus Christ and his sinless blood provides the final offering that meets all of God's demands. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then, and then to wrap all of this up, remember, all of this is talking about gathered worship, the, the assembly of the saints when the people of Israel were to come together. To wrap all of this up, the law reiterates that those with the responsibility of pronouncing these pardons, these assurances, are to be provided for. And this is God's provision. Let me just read these last 10 verses of chapter 7, verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast and the breast shall may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, again, this is a reiteration and a little bit more specific about which cuts of meat belong to the priests. But it is a reiteration that the Lord is the source of all things and that he provides for his people, whether it's the animals and the food or the forgiveness and the pardon. He is the one who provides. And he closes all of this by reminding his people that these are the instructions of the Lord for his people given you a lot today, and we've gone through a lot and left out a lot too. There's so much more that we could say about all of these sections of the law. But today we're going to do this. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he has provided all of these things in Christ for us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are all who find assurance in Christ. Through all of this today, the one thing I want you to take away from this, I'm going to acknowledge there's a lot there. I want you to take this away. Praise God from whom 
all blessings flow. That Christ has fulfilled all of the law perfectly. That we can look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we find assurance in Christ alone. Pray with me. Lord, there is so much in this. And these things, um, Peter said that Paul's writing is hard to understand. These are hard to understand. We know that this is your word, that it is inspired by God, that it is profitable for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think of these things this week, as we ponder them, as we hide them in our heart, um, that we would come away from this rejoicing. Rejoicing that Jesus Christ is our final offering and sacrifice. Lord, we rejoice and we give thanks for the finished work of Christ as we come to his table. We don't presume to come to this table, Lord, based on our own righteousness, our own law-keeping, but in your mercy. We're not, we're not worthy to even gather up the crumbs from the table, but you are merciful and gracious. And so, Lord, as we come and commemorate and celebrate in the breaking of bread, in the drinking of the cup, as we commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that we would feed on him in our hearts by faith, that we may be united to him and he to us, who with your Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.